Hello, and welcome to Anything But Traditional. I'm your host, Marvin Svee, and I'm so happy that you are here today. This episode is jam-packed with Jewish history. No, not Jewish history facts necessarily, but it's amazing what you can learn about Jewish history when you listen to one person who has experienced so much of it. In this episode, you'll hear from author Gila Green. Gila started off living in Ottawa, Canada, with a father that was Yemenite and had lived through three different wars in Israel. He was born in British-mandated Palestine, and he was just a little boy in 1948, ended up fighting in two other wars. Gila now lives in Ramah Beit Shemesh and has a son who did the army and a son-in-law that's in Milouim in the reserves. It's amazing to see how Israel has developed over the years. It's amazing to hear from Gila how she grew up in such a Zionistic house and she never thought about Aliyah, wasn't really interested, didn't really think that, kind of wanted to get away from Zionism, but ended up moving to Israel. Now is a passionate Zionist, is a passionate person for Israel, loves Israel, and has lived in Israel for close to 30 years. You'll hear in this episode all about her books, many of which are related to Israel, and her story of how she became an author, how she became a writer. It's a great episode. It's powerful, it's inspiring, and it really shows the resilience of Israel. Yes, again, it's just one person's story, but the man of history, the man of people that are encompassed in this story, you get a sense for what the Jewish people have been going through over the past 100 years. So tune in, listen in, and learn something. Thank you, Gila Green, for being on this week's episode of Anything But Traditional. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Anything But Traditional. I'm so excited to be sitting here with Gila Green and to be talking about her incredible novels, her history, her past, her present, her future. Um, Gila is, she lives in Ramah Beit Shemesh with her five awesome children. And she does a lot of different types of um, work in terms of book editing. And uh, she's written five novels. She works at Mahon Lab. Um, and I'm so excited that she's here today to talk with us a little bit about who she is um, and get to know her a bit more. So, Gila, um, let's delve into it. Okay. Thank you so much for having me, Tamar. Of course, of course. I'm so happy that you are here. Um, okay, so this is the first question I ask, you know, every guest. And uh, we'll start with this. Where did you grow up and what was your family like? Okay, well, I grew up in Ottawa originally, which is um, the capital of Canada. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that, don't know that information. Um, was my family Did like? you speak French? Or you spoke English? Yes, we were, yes, French is compulsory in school. I studied French until uh, 
second year university. I used to be really, really good at French, pretty fluent in French. Now, uh, because I've been living in Israel for 30 years, I can still understand a lot of French. Um, but when I go to speak it, Hebrew tends to come out first. And then I have to sort of pause. I think I could like pick it back up if I were in a French environment. So I am the youngest of six children, um, three boys and three girls. Uh, my parents' marriage is a second marriage. My father is Israeli. He's Yemenite. Probably we were the only, uh, I would say, Yemenite family in the city when I was growing up. There really were no um, Sparty Jews or Yemenite Jews or any Israeli Jews whatsoever. Very few. Like, if there would be 10, that would be a lot. So it was really, um, really... Uh, an outsider from that respect and all the traditions that I knew were Ashkenazi traditions because those were the only uh, traditions in existence. So that was all I knew. Um, Did you grow up religious or you grew up more secular? Like, So, you know what, in those days we didn't really have all the terms that we had today. Um, it's interesting because I've also heard Rabbi Haber uh, mention this. We didn't really have, we had one Jewish school in the whole city and everybody went to that school. So, and it was very small. The classes were maybe like, you know, 23 people in your class and that's boys and girls together. So we didn't really have these concepts that people talk about today. It was like, you were considered either you were Shomer Shabbat or you weren't, but that was about it. But everybody went, everyone I knew who was Jewish, again, it's a very small Jewish community. Even today, it's maybe 20,000 and, and, and 10,000 affiliated. We're talking a very small community. So everyone I knew went to that Orthodox school. Um, we didn't think of it as Orthodox school. We just thought of it as Jewish school where, you know, you had to daven, you had to learn Torah, you had to learn Rashi, you had to learn all the holidays. We just took that for granted. That's what Jewish school was because there wasn't anything else. And, and all the kids were mixed together. So. Um, it was really only when I came to Israel in my early 20s that I was quite shocked. Um, it took me a long time to understand all these different divisions and subdivisions and terminology and names and kippa colors and all this. I I'd never heard of it Um And in some ways, maybe I was better off. You know, there, we just didn't have this when. Um, there's a lot of um, anti-Semitism growing up. Um, Ottawa is very close to the French border. The French are Catholics. So when I was in primary school, it was my earliest memories are of, you know, the boys who did wear kippahs coming to school. They'd had bars of soap thrown at them. Um, coming into school and Juif was written all over the boards. Um, there, So... We didn't have all this division. Do you know what I'm saying? We just... For sure. Wait, so what's it like now? It's really, really uh, bad, but it's coming from a different direction. When I was growing up, I was probably, you know, if not the darkest, one of the darkest people in the school. That was always being um, pointed out to me. Um, but now there are so many um, immigrants. Now Arabic is the third 
most spoken language after French and English or English and French in the region. So there's a very big Arab population and also Muslim population, right? Not, not all Arabs are Muslims. So, you know, Iranian, Pakistani population, um, Lebanese, a, a lot of Muslims from Africa, Somalia. It's a completely different city now. It's not, I definitely wouldn't be considered the darkest person in the room anymore. So it, it's a very different place. It's so interesting because I... Um, I was on Facebook like earlier today and I was reading some comments and somebody said they're like, yeah, in Wisconsin or something like there's English, like at the zoo, there's like English and there's Arabic. And it was just like a little bit shocking to me because it's like, wow, like Arabic is now becoming such a big language in like Wisconsin. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not very pleasant there right now. There are weekly uh, pro-Palestinian rallies, et cetera. So how is your family handling it all? Well, my father is 88 now, and he was born um, in Jerusalem in 1936 under British uh, mandate, um, British mandate Palestine, British occupied Palestine, however you want to call it. And his mother was born in Ottoman Palestine. So they came here in the 1880s. Um, And for him... He's a little better now, but in the beginning, for him, this was 1948 all over again. Um, it was, you know, in 1948, he was 12. He lived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was cut off. Um, water, food, etc. They were bombed. There were no uh, bomb shelters. There was no Teba Dom system, etc. So in the beginning, especially, he was, in his mind, he had he had gone back to 1948, and this was a existential war. When I sent you the email, um, I know that you you know one of the things that you said was that you had a extremely chaotic and dysfunctional family life growing up. Um, I, I, you know, I'm curious to hear more about that, like, and your relationship with your family today. Like, are you close to your family? You're, are you close to your parents? Like, is this something that's been affecting you in terms of like how they're doing in Ottawa? Like, what is the, your relationship like with them? Oh, no, I speak to my parents all the time. Um, you know, I speak to them all the time. I don't know if you know that much about um, PTSD or narcissistic personality disorder, but words like close to with those kind of people <laughs> don't really apply um, because what we think of as close to, first of all, to be close to somebody, um, a person has to have a lot of empathy. They have to really actually be able to express empathy um, and people who can't express a lot of empathy it's very hard to be close to them right because their their definition of close <laughs> might be oh i speak to you three times a week but if you if if you can you know you're talking about day to day things you can't really go much farther so these are all very sort of blurry definitions are you close to somebody if you speak to them every week or if you're close to somebody if you speak to them twice a year but you have these very meaningful conversations these are very difficult questions to answer in terms of do I speak to them all the time, etc. They're very supportive. You know, they order. They're the first ones to order the most copies of my books, etc. They will do that. But uh, that's because I think that uh, I think that certain t- 
personality types or dysfunction don't really recognize what they did. <laughs> and it would be very difficult for them to recognize it. So, you know, you have to choose that. It sounds like your father was a real Israeli, like, and that he is a real Israeli. Like, he sounds like he's just like, I don't know, when, I, when I'm hearing this, I'm like, he is. it just sounds like you grew up with such an Israeli father, and that's very different than maybe a Canadian father or a North American type of father, but, um, right, like, it, it's kind of like this tough personality that's like... Very, very, yeah, very, very Israeli. Uh, if he was a, um, a paratrooper in the 56th war. He was a tank driver in the 67th war. Um, he's a bodybuilder, um, a very, very big, strong guy, um, fluent in Arabic, and um, to this day probably speaks Arabic more when he's outside the house. I mean, now he has a lot of opportunities to speak Arabic <laughs> because there's a, such a, a large Arab-speaking population. And so English would be his third language. Um, he didn't really speak English that well when I was growing up. Um, yes, very, very Israeli, you know, he's going to drive across a football field covered in snow to not stay in the line. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, that's a good way of describing super Israeli. Did you, did you feel like you were a real like immigrant family growing up? Like, did you, with that part of like the hardship of growing up, like feeling different than other people because you were from immigrant parents? Well, my mother's super Canadian. She's as Canadian as she is Israeli. So there's nothing immigrant about her. And her parents were also born in Canada. My grandparents were born in Quebec, in Montreal. And my grandmother was born in Montreal. My grandfather was born in Wakefield. So it was only their parents, again, who came in the 1880s, most likely escaping pogroms, probably Russian pogroms. I'm very sure that's why they came. They didn't even know they got to Canada. I think my mother told me a number of times they thought they got to the U.S. Like They didn't think about, you know, this is like 1880 and Jews were just fleeing in God knows what boat they were fleeing in. And, uh, you know, they didn't even realize they were in Canada, I don't think. Um, they only spoke Russian and Yiddish. Obviously, this is 1880 and so like my grandfather um he didn't even speak english himself till he was six till he was forced to go to school he only spoke yiddish so i think i wouldn't say it's not so much an immigrant family but like a very blended family a very dichotomous very opposite this is very very extreme opposite type parents what's your mom's first language english my mom is third generation canadian and then what, like, I'm saying, how do they communicate? Like, <laughs> one wonders. Yes, exactly. <laughs> really good question. So, I mean, obviously, that's not an issue now, but correct. There was no way that she could possibly um, relate to or understand this kind of Israeli man that she met in the 1960s, the way you and I might have an understanding of. Um, but I guess, you know, I guess that was not as important to her. So, <laughs> you know, that's wow. correct. I wouldn't say immigrant family. I would say kind of a very split dichotomous, just a really big culture clash. That's very, very big. Um, 
but they're still together and they've been together for yeah well they're 88 now so i guess that's it wow. <laughs> they've been together for how many years then they've been together for like probably what like 40 years like, like more than like more than 50 i mean they were both married before for 10 years so yeah more than 50 i would say 50 more yeah more than 50 because i'm i'm more than 50 what am i saying so <laughs> yes Long time. and you're the youngest yes wow wait so do you have any step siblings or half siblings or is it only um when my father married my mother she had four small children um so i guess technically they are half siblings although it's not like a term um, that's particularly beloved in my family. People don't really like that term. Um, and then I have a brother who's a year and a half older than me who lives in Ottawa. I relate actually a lot. Um, my family is also a mixed family. Um, my parents got married when I was 12. Um, they both lost their first spouses and then they got married to each other. Um, and so I have three step siblings and two biological siblings, but it, it's always funny because we've been told that like from a very, like from the time that my parents got married, it's like, you're not step siblings. You guys are real siblings, you know, like obviously there's like differences and whatever, but you know, and there's stories that we have from our past and we, they definitely don't erase, you know, my father or their mother, but there's a, yeah, that feeling of like, no, we're not half siblings. We're, you know, or we're not step siblings. We're, like real siblings, and I was right. talking about. I don't have step siblings, but I so I could see how that would be maybe even more difficult to overcome. Yeah. Because if you don't share even one parent, I could see how that would be sometimes even more of an obstacle. Right. Well, now I always say like it's funny because I always say that my dad, like my stepdad, basically is my father, like for all intents and purposes. Like he raised me since I'm in sixth grade so it's funny because I always see like similarities between me and my stepdad and I'm like I don't know if that's because we're like similar or because you raised me you know and uh yeah so it's, it's kind of funny so okay so while you were growing up what were your expectations like for your life well um I always really enjoyed school I really wanted to study um I didn't come from an academic household, so that wasn't particularly, yeah, I wasn't really like someone one way or the other. My mother was a childhood actress, and she spent most of her young years acting in the book that's coming out now. With a good eye, you'll see that the mother is an actress, a play, a play actress. I'm talking about plays. We're talking about, you know, the 19th 40s, like late 40s, 50s. We're not talking about films. Um, a stage actress, I guess, is the correct um, And the mother is uh, purposely in this novel that I just re uh, released, uh, a stage actress, which I don't have in my other novels. I don't come, they don't have that kind of academic uh, background. So it's just kind of considered like Okay, it wasn't like pushed the way you think of in, in like a typical Jewish family. So I wanted to, I really just wanted to, I, want, I always wanted to be an academic, I always wanted to study, and I really wanted to teach. I always wanted to write. I don't know if I wanted to write novels. I would think probably in those days I probably wanted to publish like 
literary criticism or something romantic like that. If you think back to the eighties, uh, <laughs> before before the, uh, the sort of current uh, sort of group think took over all the universities, when you thought you were actually going to be able to, you know, naively think you were going to be able to express your own opinions, which clearly in the real world that wouldn't that wouldn't really work. <laughs> so it's probably just as well but uh I definitely wanted to do something with books writing reading I definitely am doing what I always wanted to do in that area wow. but did anything like change did you like think you were gonna live in Ottawa and now you live in Israel or did you think you were gonna like how did you end up in Israel in the first place that's a good question um nope I never had any intention of living in Israel um I actually published an article about this recently, um, and there's this new Sparty Mizrahi magazine called Distinctions that just came out, the second issue, because um, they asked me the same question. I actually never had any intention of being Israel. I was not um, particularly Zionistic. I had kind of grown up with all this Hebrew and Arabic um, sort of in my face all the time, and I actually wanted to get away from it, to tell you the truth. But at a certain point, I was doing a journalism degree. I did a four-year journalism degree at Carleton University. And at a certain point, after three years, I really wanted to take a break. It was a very, very intense degree. You had to you had to hand in articles every single week uh, in those days, radio, TV. There was no internet, such thing as internet. It was a very intense degree. You were always reporting. You were always editing. You were always on campus. I double majored in literature. So it was very intense. I wanted to take a year off. Um, and the only place I could afford to go was Israel. Um, I didn't have the money to, you know, go through, you know, everyone was going through Europe or in Canada, they have something called swap. If you're part of the Commonwealth, you can work for a year in a Commonwealth country. Didn't really, uh, working in like the hard rock cafe in Australia didn't really <laughs> do any that much for me. But Israel, um, I could get a scholarship to go there. So the truth is that I came to Israel because I, that was what I could afford, not because I was I had some idealistic Zionist, uh, you know, dream. I had siblings here. I had two siblings uh, in Israel. I had family here. So I ended up coming to Israel and studying at Haifa University. My one of the novels I published called uh, Passport Control is based on my dormitory experience in Haifa University, because I think because of my name, my name is very Israeli. So I didn't end up on the overseas program like I was supposed to be. Usually they put all the English speaking students together. And, you know, that's what they assume. You're on the overseas program. You're not part of the regular program. And I'm assuming it's because of my name. Um, I ended up in a room with, a. she's an Israeli Arab, but she identified very strongly as a Palestinian. Um, so with a Palestinian roommate, a Druze roommate, and two uh, Israelis with Moroccan background, which I had never met. I didn't have any understanding of this, the different, you know, dot that we have here. It didn't mean anything to me. Um, and then I had an Ashkenazi roommate, which, again, I had never used that term. It didn't mean anything to me. I didn't understand. I just knew, you know. Jewish people, <laughs> not Jewish people. <laughs> we didn't really have these terms. I never heard these terms. Um, even though I spoke Hebrew all my life and spent 10 years in Orthodox school, I never heard these terms. Never heard any, I never heard the word Haredi in my life. Never heard the word Dati Lumi. Never heard any of these terms. 
So I didn't know really what was going on. I was kind of thrown into a very tense apartment. <laughs> very, very tense. Um, as a Palestinian girl, clearly was not a happy girl. I mean, she was a 26-year-old master's student. She was, she was definitely a woman. She was not a girl. So it was, I actually based the situation in my novel on that experience. Of course, my novel is much more dramatic and there's murder and there's all kinds of things going on, which of course didn't happen in real life. But the setup Earth is based on that. Yes, yes, thank God. But the setup is based on the idea. And at the end of that time, I ended up um, hanging out for a while in my sister's kibbutz. It's not a kibbutz anymore. It's, it's gone bankrupt, but it's still a beautiful place. Um, and I met my future husband there. Is he from Israel? No, he's South African. Um, he's from Johannesburg, and this is the, still the time of uh, apartheid. I, you know, I was frustrated the other day with something, and I, I don't know what I was saying to one of my daughters, but I, I realized that I, I had a father who grew up in Mandate, Palestine, and a husband who grew up under apartheid. <laughs> I was like, well, obviously I'm frustrated. <laughs> what is going on? Do you see a lot of similarities between them? No, no. I mean, the only similarity that I sense between them, they're not alike in, at all. But the similarity is that so many things that I take for granted, that people who grow up in democracies, who aren't even, who aren't even particularly conscious that they're growing up in democracies, um, they don't take for granted at all, and they don't see it that way at all. We're used to kind of, I think North Americans, probably including a lot of Europeans, are used to a kind of outlook that we just take for granted. Um, and people who don't grow up in those kind of societies don't think like that. <laughs> they simply do not. And we take it as like automatic, sort of, right? Yeah. Do you mind giving an example? Um, that everybody should have the same rights, for example. Um, gay rights, um, all just, you know, it would be very, uh, feel very strange for me to think that somebody shouldn't have the same rights. We're not really used to different tier, even though we all know in practice, of course, in practice, there are people who live above the law and, you know, have a, have the different rules applied to them, but we're not talking about that. We're just talking about sort of how our minds work, that everyone's kind of equal and everyone um, should have similar opportunities. They, they don't assume that at all. Or um, just generally maybe about the use of force, how to resolve conflicts. Um, it would be natural for us to say, you know, you have to talk things out and violence is never the answer. Maybe not quite so trite, but we kind of think in those kind of ways, peaceful resolution Great. Yeah, people who don't grow up in those places don't necessarily, that's not necessarily their first <laughs> response. Like, let's all sit down and discuss this peacefully. That can be jarring sometimes. But it could also be kind of, like, beneficial right now of, like, okay, realizing that we're not going to have a peaceful solution and we have to figure it out. Like, we have to figure out how to deal with terrorists when they're terrorists and not peaceful. It's 100% useful. It's very, very useful. I think everybody should. I was listening to someone recently. Could have been, it could have been Douglas Murray. And he was saying that somebody asked him, what do you think we should do with these people who just have this one outlook and don't get sort of all the benefits they have growing up in North America, they don't seem to get it. They seem to just be taking it all for granted. And they don't realize how precarious it is. And he said um, that they should travel. And I 100% agree with that. I think that living 
in the Middle East in the early 90s, living with uh, Palestinians, Druze, and then I ended up living in South Africa for close to a year at the very end of apartheid. I think that was extremely beneficial for me because I had taken a ton for granted um, growing up in Canada. I'd never met people. For example, um, I remember when I first arrived there and they had this maid and I was trying to show her on a map where I was from. She asked me where I was from. And then... <laughs> And then uh, it was pointed out to me that she can't read. Oh, wow. And I had never met um, a whole population of people, you know, full-grown adults, much older than I was at the time, um, who couldn't read. And it was just assumed, like it was just, nobody thought twice about it. This group of people, you know, are not taught to read. And this group of people are taught to read. And like, that's just how it is. That's, That's how it is. You know, the same way, you know, you have the weather and if it's minus 20, that's how it is. And, you know, these kind of things, realizing what we took for granted, that all these things can be taken away. You can lose those things. Um, it's a lot easier not to take them for granted if you go and you live somewhere where you see. That was very difficult for me to internalize that all these different people around me could not read. Um and weren't ever given opportunity to read, not because they had a reading disorder, it's <laughs> because they they didn't, you know, that, so those, that's a very small example, but I think that's really important. People need to travel, and then they'll take a lot less for granted, and they'll realize, hopefully they will. I don't see any other solution. That's the best solution. Go and live with, you know, in a completely different um, political system, and then see how much you, you know, See what you think about your own before you, you know, criticize it or. So going back to your story. So, wow. Okay. There's a lot. To ah, so I had met this uh, guy <laughs> from South Africa. Um, and obviously I had to go back. I had to, I had to do my whole fourth year. I wasn't going to throw my whole degree, you know, away for anyone you got to be careful you don't want to take too much time off your degree right even today that still applies 100%. so I went back and you know we make this to a romantic story but you know in those days there was not internet and long distance calls were super expensive they were hundreds of dollars uh, it wasn't like today there was no FaceTime and all these different things so ultimately I am um, also because of my parents because I grew up um with parents who couldn't possibly understand each other um, when it came to their backgrounds. I wasn't going to repeat that um, experience. And therefore I had told him um, that if you want to pursue this relationship, then you have to come and live here. And when I say live here, I mean live here, like get an apartment, pay some bills, not tour, not like, tour around and say, oh, like, there's the CN Tower, there's Niagara Falls, um, you know, and that's not living here. And I have to go live there because I'm never going to understand. You know, there were just certain things I could always see growing up. I could see both sides, but it was clear to me that they were never going to be able to see them. So that was part of the deal. (laughs) So he came uh, to Canada and I sent him off by himself while I was studying. He went off to Vancouver and around and he actually, you know, obviously couldn't work 100% legally, but he managed to get some work and get an apartment, you know, like go to the grocery store, like see how people act, see how people drive, see how people, you know, don't honk, see how people 
don't litter, <laughs> all of these things, etc. Um, and then he eventually, you know, he ran out, he ran out of money, obviously, and went back. And then I went to Johannesburg and had an apartment. And how, how long was he in Ottawa for? was only in Ottawa for maybe a little bit over a month. And I sent him off to Vancouver because, first of all, I think the weather in Ottawa was giving him like an absolute heart attack. It was January. Really, he'd never seen snow. Ever. Okay, so if you've never seen snow and you come to Ottawa in January, um, <laughs> that's a pretty zero to ten treatment. Um, you know, it's it's a, extremely cold. It's, it could be minus 30, minus 35 with wind chill. Um, snow piled really high, you know, so that was a really big, it wasn't like, you know, today, because we watch so much online and videos and stuff like that, we have so much exposure to things. People didn't have that in those days. That was a really big, uh, big deal for him. Um, so he, Vancouver doesn't have that kind of climate. It's just rainy. It looks more like Cape Town also. I don't know how familiar you are, but Vancouver always has like the ocean and the mountains in the background. And Cape Town also always has ocean and mountains in the background. So it's more, much more moderate. And he went out there and I needed to study. I didn't need this guy like um, <laughs> distracting me. I needed to write my thesis and graduate, study, not, not be entertaining someone. And, and I wanted him to live there. That was the whole point. I wanted him to meet other Canadians and, you know, so he did that. Uh, he was probably there in total, maybe like six or eight months. And then eventually, obviously, that's only sustainable for so long. Um, so he went back and then I went to South Africa um, and also had an apartment and also was in an absolute culture shock about what was going on over there. Um, it was still apartheid, but it was the end. It was still the clerk. And it was very, very hard for me to get my head around the culture, the, uh, on one hand, the extreme materialism that was in a lot of the people that I met there, you know, materialism was very vast, servants made these kind of things that were beyond what a regular, even upper class, like, doesn't have a whole staff yeah. <laughs> of people, <laughs> um, and just being called madam, People, you know, you're dating someone that people are calling master. This whole concept of madam master was really hard for me um, to get my head around. I told you on the literacy and then the crime, like having to, um, you know, park your car and literally take your whole car with you into the restaurant. Like take out the tape deck, <laughs> take out the radio, put it between you on the table. Everyone's sitting, ordering dinner with, with their pieces of their car on the table. Um, you know, where I grew up, we didn't even lock the car. We never locked the car. Why would you lock the car? My father would just tell you someone would break the window. Like he'd never lock a car. So there was extreme culture difference. But ultimately I wasn't allowed to work. The South African government saw that I had a journalism degree and they had stamped that I couldn't legally work in the country. I guess they didn't want any more apartheid uh, publicity wasn't a very popular country at the time. So you can only stay somewhere for so long when you can't work. Um, eventually you have to earn more money. So ultimately you were there for a year and a half, right? I was there for quite a while. I mean we tried, we did travel around. We went to, you know, Swaziland and places around, but I wanted to live there um, to try to understand what the culture was like. 
you know, pay bills, go around, like live there. But ultimately, um, to make it shorter, what happened was he couldn't come back to Canada. They were very suspicious of South Africans at that time. It was very hard to travel with South Africans. They used to interrogate them in the lines. And they were well aware that people were trying to get out of South Africa. There was a fear that it would... Uh, it would sort of dwindle, the situation would dwindle into a civil war. They didn't know how apartheid was going to end. Was it going to end with a big civil war or was it going to end peacefully? People didn't know. Just like now, we don't know how things are going to end. So at that time, they didn't know how things were going to end. There's a lot of fear. So he couldn't get into Canada. I couldn't go back to a place where I wasn't allowed to work. So we were separated, sort of geopolitically. <laughs> he couldn't go over there and I could go over here. And uh, so I ended up saying, well, there's only one place, I guess, that we can both um, go. <laughs> and that's really how I ended up here. Um, wow, ended up meeting that's him there. crazy. That's so crazy. Wait, so how long did you guys date for? It sounds like a long time. Long time. A long time. Yeah. Well, again, um, I even today, I can't fathom uh, marrying people that you don't know for a long time. This whole thing of like, you know, knowing someone for a few weeks. Yeah, that's never going to work for me. I, I respect it. You know, that's what people want to do. But uh, no. Are you, you got dated for like four years, five years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, like crazy. Wait, so do you, you don't have kids though that are in the like dating process right now? No, I have three married kids. None of them dated for a few weeks. Oh my gosh, no. No, no. My daughter got married at 18 to a boy that she had. Uh, I mean, he's basically a neighbor. It was on the street. A wonderful, a wonderful boy who's up in the north now. Um, and she had known him since she was 15. He's basically been circling my house uh, for a number of years. And uh, she got married at 18. And I have another daughter who got married a year ago. She's 21. So she got married at 20 and also um, also a neighbor. They also, they just lived five minutes the other direction. And uh, also someone that she had met over the years for a number of years. And we knew the family and my son as well. Um, so no, not that, that kind of, that just doesn't, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> so, I mean, it's great that it works for other people, but it doesn't work for me to know people for a few weeks I just for sure no. so I'm actually super curious right because it's not like you ended up in you know a, a like it's not like you ended up in Haifa or Kibbutz or whatever you ended up in your Mabe Shemesh and your Mabe Shemesh is very um I mean it's very Anglo so that you guys do fit in in that regard but it's not your Mabe Shemesh is a little bit like more um boxy a little bit right like it's a mm. little bit more boxy than I would have imagined you guys like ending up in I feel like you and your husband are a bit out of the box it sounds like and well, my husband's a lot more in the box than I am um <laughs> well that's for sure um well first of all we came here like 28 years ago 27 years ago like in the beginning of Ramat Beit Shemesh yeah so there was nothing here right so you 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 seem like you're you're pretty young and if you're in Novation Mir, you're in like a new area. Um, whereas I'm like in the really old area, like the original area. Like Dolaf. 
the ancient historical, you know, Shakespearean area of Nahadolet. Uh, <laughs> So when I came here 27 or 28 years ago, there was nothing here. Honestly, nothing. There weren't even street signs. This was all fields. Um, we had lived for a little while in Jerusalem. And then at a certain point, we lived in Ranana for a couple of years. And then we wanted to, and then we met up with some wonderful, really, um, hate the word amazing because it just has lost all meaning, but such amazing <laughs> um, people in Renata who were all buying here and they were trying to talk us into and it was really it was nothing I don't know how long, how long have you been here um we've lived in Lerma for I think six and a half years oh so yeah I mean there was absolutely <laughs> nothing I've probably heard that before there was a little Macaulay yeah, yeah. and there was absolutely nothing so then it was tooted as like a mixed neighborhood. It was supposed to be a mixed neighborhood. And the most important thing about it really at that time was that it was at least affordable, like regular affordable. You didn't have to, not um, like now. you know, not like now. Um, <laughs> it was affordable. And then the location, it was kind of between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. So, you, you know, work-wise, you felt like there was going to be, you were going to have access to, to work, right? Because even then, wasn't as much people working from home 25 years ago as it is today. Now, even for some people, that's less of a concern because they're just gonna, they have, you know, they're gonna work from home. So it was well located in that respect and it was affordable and there was really nothing here. And it was supposed to be very mixed. And at that time, I wanted a mixed um, neighborhood. I felt that was important for kids to grow up in a mixed neighborhood to, to see all different kinds of people. Um, but you are correct. Over the years, um, uh, you know, the definition of mixed has changed. I mean, uh, when we moved here, there were completely secular people and all kinds of, yeah, it's really changed. Now mixed, you know, mixed means like a different color kippah, which is really not mixed. <laughs> That's not mixed. That's not the real definition of mixed. That's amazing. Um I guess that's great. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. But then I'm like, oh, that's the word that you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not so much meaning. You know, it's like special. Everyone's always really special. Like what in the world does that mean? It's just got, I guess, just because I'm a writer. I feel like people don't even that. use the word special so much anymore because special is like, it can have the connotation of like, special needs, special ed, special this, special that. Like, I feel like exactly. when people say special, it's like, you know, different in yeah. A lot of words have, have been trampled upon. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. words you can't say. You can't say something's progressive. You can't say so many words. <laughs> you should you see what it's like being be interviewed used. by people overseas. It's like a minefield of language. <laughs> yeah, you don't I don't want to be progressive. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm saying anymore to people. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just a minefield because they're they're changing the language so quickly. What are your pronouns? You know? Yeah, I, you always have to announce your pronouns, and they're changing things so quickly that you don't even know. You can't, you can't keep up with it, and you don't, you know, you don't. You really have no intention of offending anybody, but you have no idea um, what you're saying. But you know, people have to realize there's context too. You can't go around looking to be offended. hundred percent. I mean, I think it's also like the. You know, one of the things that could be beneficial of growing up in a place that was 
you know, like South Africa or, you know, like during the apartheid or your dad who grew up in, you know, British mandated Palestine. Like when you're under such rule, there's a sense of like, like you're not as like open to all these crazy words, right? So like, I'm not saying I ever want to live in those communities. And I feel very blessed to live in where I, I mean, obviously I love Israel, but I'm saying I live in, I, I feel very blessed to live in the era that I live in today. But there is this feeling of like, too open versus too narrow, you know? Correct. I think a lot of times, so they have a very strong sense of who they are. There weren't all these options. It's just like it's like exactly. it's like the whole psychology where they test people if you go into an ice cream store and there's three options versus thirty options. You could be more miserable where there's thirty options, right? Because you always think you chose whatever you chose. There was probably something better, right? How are you going to choose the best one of thirty options? Whatever, it doesn't matter what you choose in that ice cream store. I was like, oh, should have had maybe that one. I should have had that. But if there's only three, you're like more confident. You feel like, okay, I chose chose the strawberry. I chose this the chocolate and I'm fine with it. Didn't really want strawberry vanilla. You're fine. Yes. We don't do well. And now overseas, there's so many options of lifestyles that how do you ever feel that you chose the right one? You know, there are so many, but like like you said, triples and polyamory and polygamy. And it's like, Oh my, you know, bestiality. It's like, Oh my gosh, what is going on in this world? Um, yeah, I definitely, definitely feel that. So did you, do you feel like you ever became like Zionistic or you just feel like you ended up here because it, uh, it was like a fluke? Well, my house was hyper Zionistic. That's what I mean. When I wanted to get away, it was hyper Zionistic. Right. Um, if Israel was on the news, uh, you absolutely, you, 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 you weren't not allowed to talk. You weren't allowed to breathe. You had to know exactly what was going on. Because of the way I look physically, I couldn't escape it. I was, and because of my name, which actually is Gila, it's not some name that I took because I make Aliyah. I'm sorry to disappoint <laughs> all these people who ask me if I, my real name is Gail or my real name is something else. No, it's just Gila, which is a name that no one where I was growing up could pronounce ever. Um, my husband actually didn't believe me. He always thought I was exaggerating. And then in 2020, before Corona, I was an author. I was a guest author, one of the many guest authors at the Vancouver Jewish Book Festival. And he came with me. And he could not believe the amount of time I spent going, Gila, it rhymes with Sheila. Yeah, it's Gila. It rhymes with Sheila. And I'm like, you see that? You owe me decades of apology. He, he never traveled with me when I met, was meeting so many strangers and giving so many talks. Like you owe me now like a 25 year apology because I am telling you no one in this country can say this name, which of course, when you're a young person is extremely humiliating and painful, right? No, no teenager wants to know that the first day of school, they're going to spend the whole day crawling under their desk because no one can say their name and the whole class is going to turn and stare at them. I was in a lower degree, but I was always called Tamara. And I'm like, I'm not Tamara, I'm Tamar, not Tamara, Tamar. I'm like, well, I don't even know that name. What is that name? Tamar, Tamar. What I was saying is the Zionism is kind of thrust on me because I was always having to explain my name. I was always having to explain. I was constantly being asked where I was from. I was constantly being spoken to in, you know, in Greek or Italian um, and constantly so 
and the house was very, very Zen. So maybe not how people think of it in modern terms, yes? Like how people think of things today and how people thought of things 30 years ago is very, very different. So that has to be kept in mind. So I, I had wanted a space from it. It was like I couldn't get away from it. I couldn't walk out the door without someone asking me about something about that, which would always refer me back to Israel. Um, so I wanted to get away from it. What do I think now? Um, it's interesting because that's also in this article. They asked me the same question, the editors of this uh, magazine. I don't think it's kind of like asking me what I think of like my eye color or something. We're sort of we're brought up to be Zionist. I'm aware of my father's um, sacrifices in the war. I wrote this whole one of my first novels, I could show you a picture, White Zion, it's called White Zion, is a novel and stories of that a lot of it is sort of auto-fiction auto and a lot of about uh, my family coming over in 1880 from Yemen, what it was like for um, Mizrahim here in the beginning of the state, which wasn't, um, which was extremely problematic. There was a lot of, a lot of discrimination at that time against um Jews, uh, I guess today they're called Jews of color, which wasn't wasn't something I would have ever heard of 15 or 20 years ago. But so I I think it just is built in. Um, I don't know if I'm really making sense, but, it, you know, Jews have to have their own place. That's it. Like, I don't really see it as like a debate or a discussion. I don't understand. Like, people don't debate if Germans need a place or Japanese people need a place, it's very, I, it's hard for me intellectually. Yes. I can always, can always intellectualize another side of the argument, but emotionally I don't get that there's another side of the argument. It doesn't mean I think that every single Jewish person has to pack up and move here tomorrow morning. It's probably, you know, not going to work out for everybody to do that. <laughs> Just realistically it might not work out. Um, but I don't really see another side to that. That's it's, it's hard for me to, uh, what, what, like no one questions if if people need, you know, their own space on the planet. I don't really. Did your parents ever think about coming back? Like, your, did your dad ever think about coming back to Israel? Look, I can't speak for. Uh, I can't. My mother definitely uh, volunteered uh, several times, especially when I was really, really little, like just you know, uh, an infant. She definitely uh, offered to come and live here, even though. I mean, she's hopeless. She's taken so many ulpans and she's lived with an Israeli for decades and her Hebrew is absolutely hopeless. But she definitely did. I, de I think that I can't really speak for him. Yes, I can only put my interpretation on him. But my father has way too much PTSD from three wars from 56 and 67 to like live here on a day-in, day-out basis. It's too... Uh, it's too painful for him. I mean, I'm again. You got to ask him. But does he visit? No, not anymore. Not for a long time. It's very painful for him to. Um, it's too painful. Wow. Wait, which three wars? Nineteen forty-eight, and the Yom Kippur War. Well, nineteen forty-eight. You know, he lived through as a twelve-year-old. Um. I know they had to eat grass and boil weeds. And, and um, 56, he was um, a paratrooper in the war with Egypt. 
um, paratrooping into uh, Egypt, and then 57, he was a tank driver. So it, it's, it's, it's very difficult for him. I think, like, I see it now. That's one of the painful things about being living years of war now is I, I see this whole generation of boys that are going to have to live with some very, very difficult stuff to live with. You have to remember also in his time, there was no such thing. It was like you finished fighting and then it's like, okay, bye. Like, thanks. You know, there wasn't like um, some social worker calling you, <laughs> asking you if you wanted to talk about PTSD. It didn't exist. So do you have any sons in the army today? No, I have um, my amazing, um, very beloved son-in-law who's in uh, Pikuda Oref up in the north. We just went back this morning, actually. My son was in uh, Netzachyuda, and the Haredi unit tends to do less um, milloin for whatever reason. And uh, they called him up, and then they basically sent him back, like, <laughs> the next day. So my other son-in-law... Um, was a drummer. He's still a drummer, but he was a drummer in the IDF band. So they don't call up musicians uh, for Meloem, but he has been um, doing a tremendous effort going around, putting his former band back together and um, all kinds of hotels and places where people have been evacuated, uh, kids, and you know, playing for them all over the place. People evacuated from, you know, Ashdod, all over the place, which my, my daughter was going with him to some of the things, but she's also started finding it really difficult. I mean, the kids are having a good time, but the, you can see that a lot of these adults, you know, this is going to be a long process for them. A, on a recent interview, we just interviewed uh, Roxanne Weinberger, and she's actually helping the people in uh, of Yishuv Shlomit who are staying at their Kremim Hotel. Um, and yeah, so it's there's a lot of work to be done there, and um, yeah, it's it's intense. So, okay, we've spoken a lot about your life, who you are, what you're doing today, who you were in the past, your upbringing, but we haven't spoken that much about you, you being an author, um, and so I just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about that. Like what, you know, I know that you said that you've always wanted to be an author, but what sparks you to write? Um, can you tell me a little bit about your books, about your life as an author? Thank you for asking. Um, at a certain point after I had three kids, I was really feeling, like you said, quite closed in here a little bit. Sort of it's not so easy um, or it wasn't for me. Maybe it was for other people. Anything kind of on the creative side is a little more difficult in communities like ours. Um, there isn't, you know, it was a, a lot more going on. People who I knew in Jerusalem and other places seemed to have a lot more outlets than we did. So I went and I did the master's in creative writing at Bar Ilan, which was only the second year that the program existed, which was then like a really big deal. I always thought that I would have to go overseas. I didn't really think there would be a master's in English um, here in Israel. So I did that tier program. I had two really, really supportive uh, professors, writer professors, Steve Sturd and Mark Marsky, both from New York, and just absolutely really supportive of my writing. So I just started publishing right away short stories, sending them out to literary magazines from the old days, you know, stamps, envelopes, like really old-fashioned stuff, printing out stories, um, and starting to publish them. And that ended up becoming my thesis. 
And then this book, which I showed you before, White Diane, um, love Serena uh, Barbara Press, which is in um, outside of Boston. Um, so I had a lot of short stories published and people were encouraging me, you know, you should go towards novels. Nobody wants to read short stories. Everybody wants to read novels. So at that, I ended up writing a book, my first novel called King of the Class, which came out in 2013. It came out of Vancouver. And that novel actually was inspired by, I was living in Beit Shemesh, obviously. And there was a lot of tension between religious and secular Beit Shemesh. It's culminated, or maybe, I don't know actually what the culmination was, but for me, it culminated one time when this woman got really attacked um, driving through one of the neighborhoods here. She was attacked. It was really unbelievable to me that I was living like a couple blocks from like this very, very extreme ideology and sort of where that was going. So I ended up writing like this book, you could see, King of the Class. And King of the Class is a futuristic satire. And it takes place in like a post-Civil War Israel. This came out in 2013. And uh, Yair Lapid was actually the prime minister in my book. And Israel is divided into a halakhic state, a secular state. And then there's this man-made island of Yovel, which kind of put a lot of the Palestinians um, created more land for them. This is crazy because I actually know somebody that, um, I mean, maybe maybe there's other people that also feel this way. I don't know because I've never heard this ideology before. But I have a very good friend whose father is like, we should have a three-state solution. And literally, that that's exactly what it is. But it's um, like um, Haredi. Pal, you know, Palestinian and Jewish. And it's crazy because that seems what your book's about. Right. So, yeah, it was kind of came out of like what I was seeing. I couldn't like, you know, I felt it was like a warning. People weren't realizing where this was going. My own daughters would like wait at a bus stop and get called Shiksa and different names by people. And so I wrote that book um, and there was, this was a futuristic satire. And then I, Started to write another book, like I told you, based on my experiences at Haifa University, obviously far more dramatized, but the setup, that book was accepted by um, um, a really a, a popular writer at the time, Jackie Mitchard, who she was like Oprah Winfrey's like first pick. And when she first started her series of, you know, choosing, she had sort of, a, I don't know, it was a book of the month or whatever she had at that time in the 90s. And that made her kind of a superstar and they made a movie out of her book. And she became like a well-known editor. And I was thrilled that she chose my book. But a couple months before it was supposed to come out, uh, Simon & Schuster did all these cutbacks and they ended up um, just eliminating her imprint. And she like from one day to the next disappeared. And then they moved me to a much fancier imprint. And to make it short, I started getting all these, what they call sensitivity readers and sensitivity reads. This book, don't forget it, it had already been accepted like two years before. It already had a cover. It was already going to come out. I was very excited about it. And then all these sensitivity readers, they said, oh, no, it needs a Palestinian sensitivity reader, an Israeli sensitivity reader, an American sensitivity reader. And I just came back looking like a war map. And, and these are Jewish editors as well. Um, and to make it short, they came back to me and said, you know, there's so many Jewish heroines, like it's so done, like, let's make her like Syrian Christian, like, let's make her like an Arabic speaking Syrian Christian. And obviously, like, what happened to cultural appropriation? Like, what, 
why can I do that? I'm not Syrian or Christian. So I thought that cultural appropriation was like this big no-no. Like I can't even, you know, like dress up with a Mexican hat for Halloween, right? Because that's like not politically correct. And the kids are, I wasn't, I had to make that decision because, you know, to be like, you know, a woman at home with little kids and have an offer from Simon and Schuster is like, you know, you're living on a hill in Big Chemish. I don't have any connections. I don't know anyone. Here's this opportunity, this big fancy publisher, but at what cost? Like my name's on the book. She's not going to be Syrian Christian. So that wasn't going to happen. So I had to withdraw, which was actually very difficult and a low point for me. But I ended up just, you know, making a big coffee and putting the original manuscript back together before all of their sensitivity reads where I was constantly trying to go towards them and like, put more, which I consider to be propaganda um, in the book. The book is a story. It's a novel. It's not PR. It's not a pro-Israel PR book. It's not. It's a story with Jewish and Arab characters. That's what it is. It's not, you know, write by committee. <laughs> so that I ended up putting it together. And ironically, I ended up publishing it with a really small publisher in Virginia who was American but married to a Palestinian and a very big pro-Palestinian activist. And she had like Palestinian flags all over her site. She said she took international fiction. And I, I guess I had this kind of bee in my bonnet that they were trying to make me out to be a racist, which I'm completely not. I mean, you know, I've heard Arabic spoken in my house my whole life. Um, so I guess I dafka sent it to her. I'm like, well, let's just see if this manuscript is racist. Let's see what this, you know, pro-Palestinian activist thinks of this book and she wrote me back right away that she she loved it she didn't agree with every single way i particularly like the goal on the war of the goal ahead to syria she didn't think that that was exactly how it had happened in her opinion but it was a great story and she wants to write to publish literature not you know her opinion so i actually ended up publishing it with a very small publisher who was very pro-palestinian um but respected the story so that was passport control. You could see I used like, those were my actual, the story takes place in 1992. We don't have these visas anymore because now Israel stamps like outside on a separate paper. But these were my original, I always knew there was a reason I didn't throw out my old passports. These were like my original visas that say Ben Gurion 1992 that I photographed for like an authentic like cover. So I didn't get the glamour and the coverage but I got my story out. I didn't get the Simon and Schuster glamour, but I didn't compromise my um, ideals. And that's happened a few times over my career. I've had a couple of agents, Jewish agents, approach me and tell me that if I was, they'd saw my short story in a certain magazine, and if I was willing to write one person who I won't, of course, mention, he had this whole idea that I should write a novel about an American family, a Zionistic, idealistic family. He, he sent me the whole plot of the novel. And then he'd be willing to represent me. And this was like a big agency. And, um, you know, you're working really hard for this, right? So it's what you want. But you basically, I you would have to completely co compromise yourself. He wanted a story about an American family who makes Aliyah really excited and then slowly discovers that Israel's not, this amazing ideal place, but rather it's this militant, aggressive, just very, very, you know, 
Kivush, like conquering type place. And they end up becoming completely disillusioned, disappointed and going back to the States. And if I was willing to write that, um, he would take me on like this, this kind of stuff happens. And it was just like, okay, that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'm just going to stick with my small, um, presses and, uh, you know, however it goes, you know, it goes. Um, that was that. Then I did White Zion, which was basically my thesis. Also, this came outside of Boston. It's a lot, a lot of Yemeni background in here, um, stories. Um, and then after three books, I get kind of tired, I guess. I had done a lot of Israel. I had done like futuristic Israel, Ottoman Empire Israel, British Bedday Israel, modern Israel. I had done like a lot of Israel. I wanted a break, so I wrote this YA novel, No Entry, which actually takes place in Kruger Park in South Africa. It's an environmental novel. It's eco-fiction. It's not about Palestine, like the Palestinian movement and all the red signs and stuff? No, these are elephant tests. It's about elephant extinction. It's uh, about uh, eco-heroine Yael Amar, who takes on an elephant poaching ring in South Africa's Kruger National Park. And I actually named, there had been like a terrorist attack at the time. And all the characters are named after the different, um, Yael, Eris, Shira, and Shira, who were all um, died in a car ramming in Jerusalem. Um, so I gave them all the names. And this is a, it's environmental fiction. This is about the importance of elephant extinction. It was just like a total break. Like, let's just do something else. And um, yeah, so now I have two novels coming out. One is With a Good Eye, which is in pre-order right now. It's uh, coming out of Montreal. And it is um, about a 19 who turns 20-year-old heroine, Luna Levy, and she has a father. I wanted to explore this. I finally got was old enough that I wanted to explore this PTSD. I wanted to explore some of these narcissistic traits that I had referred to. Um, so I created this story of a family who is constantly jumping from crisis uh, to crisis. The heroine is emotionally abandoned by both parents and she needs to overcome. It's crime fiction. Um, the villains are um, anti-Semites, which turns out to be really timely. Uh, wasn't <laughs> at the time. Anti-Semites, I guess, is almost always timely, unfortunately. Um and explores that PTSD aspect. And uh, it's kind of a coming-of-age story, how she gets through that. It is not uh, biographical, but I've used the images, like non-functioning parents, parents who can't function as parents because they have too much of their own, uh, too many of their own issues to go uh, going on. They're, they don't even aware that they can't function as parents. That's already, an awareness is already like, a lot of solving a problem, right? Just knowing that you have a problem. It sounds really cliche, but it's actually really true. Um, there are many, many people who aren't aware that they have a problem. So they're for sure not going to solve it then. <laughs> like, I feel like books are kind of like a mode of like therapy for you that they, that you're expressing yourself through these books and like this, meaning obviously I know that these stories are much more dramatized, but do you feel like there's a sense of, you sharing your story do you feel like you are expressing yourself and your pain through it no i feel like fiction is more like a mode of fantasy for you 
So you get to make your characters react how you would have liked to have reacted. You can have a control in fiction that you can't have in real life. So I feel like it's a completely um, fantasy outlet experience because things you would never have dared to do, your characters can do and not respond. Just tell people like, I don't think so. (laughs) When in real life, you know, you probably just got mowed down by anyone even slightly aggressive. I think especially young girls, teenage girls, um, don't have much of a voice, don't really stand up for themselves too often. We see it all the time in movies and in commercials and in advertising, but that's not what most real um, teenage girls are like. Obviously there are going to be some, but it's, it's not really, teenage girls are very easily, that's why we have all these laws, right? About minors and dating them and marrying them because they're very easily coerced and they don't really like to make waves. So it's a fantasy vehicle. You can make everyone do anything where in real life you can't make anybody do anything. So I think it makes you feel really powerful, really strong. I don't find that it's so much um, therapy because, I mean, I don't, I personally, I don't, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in writing um, memoir, but I am interested in, um, in the fantasy of power and control. And you can get a lot of that from writing fiction, which I guess in itself is therapeutic. (laughs) So I guess ultimately, ultimately, yeah, that's correct. Because you just got to control something in your mind for like two years and then see it, put a cover on it. People talk to you about it. So I guess ultimately the answer is yes, but in the short term, the answer is no. That makes sense. I hear you. Yeah, I definitely hear you. So, Gila, this has been a really um, insightful, empowering conversation. I I feel like we've learned a lot about different societies, different cultures, um, just unpacking Israeli history. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I was wondering if there was one last message that you wanted to share with everybody. Well, other than I'd love it if you checked out my new book, <laughs> um, I want to definitely want to share with everybody again. I actually, this is just because this article is so recent that we have inhabited this space before. I think we're all in a really tough place right now. We're all having really ups and downs. It's hard. It doesn't really matter if you personally have your own, you know, personal son or daughter in the military right now. I feel like I have dozens of sons and daughters in the military. If not, you know, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but if not, you know, more. Um, So I think we need to realize, I think that my history, um, interviewing my father, which I was lucky that I did 18 years ago when he was 70, because I wouldn't be able to get this information now about what it was like here in 48 and 56, that we have inhabited these spaces and we are inhabiting the footsteps of our grandparents and great-grandparents, but we have so much more now. We have so much more power than they had and so many more resources than they had. I mean, they just had no resources, a way of getting their voice out, of even um, getting together. You know, they couldn't go home and start a WhatsApp group or a Facebook group. Like, what can we do? They didn't have even a phone. (laughs) So we are way more powerful. Um, 
than we were and, and than we've ever been. And I think that we have to remember that it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to forget that. But um, we, are, we are not the Jews of the 30s and 40s. We are not. We are a different generation, and our kids are a different generation. And, uh, and we're going to make it through the same way they did. Not necessarily painlessly, obviously not, but we are going to. I, I mean, I, I think I'm a, I'm a personal like product of that. Can see that. Yeah, for sure. So I have two more questions, and then we're gonna conclude. But uh, this is a question that I ask everybody at the end: Is do you have you know, especially right now, we're going through a real life tough time, um, but life is filled with tough times, as you know, as we've spoken about. Do you have a quote, a pasuk, anything like that that? keeps you motivated, keeps you headstrong, keeps you going? Wow. That's like such a big question. Um, it's not a pasuk, <laughs> but I, I, there's a quote that I've always used um, my whole life. I believe it's Edward Blake. Now you're making me question my own quote because I've used it for so long. And the quote is, the mind is its own place and of itself can make a hell of heaven. A heaven of hell. Um, it's a really powerful quote for me. I used to write it um, on the cover of my my books in school. I used to write it on my desk. Um, I think it's really important for anyway for me helpful to think of where you are in your mind is a place that you're creating. You don't have to be there. You can move it around. You can move where your mind is. So we do create that space in our own minds, right? If you're, if you're in hell right now and you're in heaven right now, you can, you can control that with your mind to a certain extent. You read about a lot of people, Nathan Sharansky and people who are in solitary confinement and like the power of their minds to, to create their space over and above where they actually physically were. I think that that's, I found that really powerful. There's probably an equivalent pasuk or to Hillam that gives off the same thing. No, for sure. That that definitely works. And uh, lastly, where can people find you if they want to reach out, if they want to, you know, be in touch for any reason? So people can find me, most people find me through my website, which is gilagreenrights.com. Um, and like, probably that's the easiest place. We'll just make it easy. Um, people find me, you know, for, for editing or writing consultations or and recently um, I've started a cooking um, Instagram and TikTok with my son and my daughter as kind of a family project. So we're also there with at Cooking with Gila. Um, we just started been doing it for about a couple months, but we're really having fun with it. It's been a really, I think, therapeutic, if you're talking about therapy, uh, thing to do during this war. Um, is to put our minds into it. Uh, at first, we even thought some people, I mean, my son was like, maybe this is inappropriate during the war. So then I stopped. But then I got some messages from people, sort of young people in their 20s in the States going, no, no, like, why are you stopping? Like, this is such a great distraction. Um, so that's another place. For sure. Thank you so, so, so much, Gila. Um, this was an incredible conversation. And um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me tomorrow. It was really fun.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Anything But Traditional. I'm sure you have learned something. I'm sure you have taken something out of this episode. There is so much here, so much to unpack. And of course, we can talk about it. So go over to Tales of Tomorrow on Instagram and be part of the conversation. Anonymously, not anonymously. You can also DM me. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm here for you always, here to dissect, here for your feedback, here for your constructive criticism. So don't be a stranger, reach out. There's also ad opportunities, sponsorships, dedications. So if you're interested, feel free to be in touch. I'd love to speak to you about it. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode. Until next time.